You're listening to a sermon by Pastor Joel Kim of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A.com. This morning, our text comes from Philippians chapter 4. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4? It's also printed in your bulletin. Um, And if you're able, would you rise out of reverence before him? Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard And seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So far, the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his wisdom, shall we? Father, thank you for inviting your sons and daughters into your house so that we may behold your glory this morning in your word. We ask for growing confidence in your word, O Lord, not just some wise words for us to ponder or words for us to intellectually engage, but these living words will pierce our hearts. For those who are new to the faith, their uh, faith will be confirmed and affirmed. And for those who are old in their faith, O Lord, renewed and refreshed as we stand before you in your word. We pray these things in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Perhaps you've been on a trip before, and as you finalize your trip preparations, one of the things that you do is that you check around the house, and you have rapid-fire commands for your kids, because you want them to make sure that everything is set. Did you unplug your things? Did you grab your cords? Because they always seem to borrow my cords for charging their phones or other tools that they have along with them. Is the oven off? Did you check the oven? Please close the windows. Please close the doors. Turn off the heater or the air conditioning are all the commands and questions we throw out at people because we are getting ready to leave. And sometimes these commands and requests and questions and statements seem disconnected to one another. They all rise out of fear and concern to take care of all things that need to be taken care of. But at the same time, we recognize these rapid fire, last minute requests and questions may not seem to be connected to one another in terms of how they are related to one another. And we see something of that in our text this morning. Paul, as he's finishing up his text here to the Philippians, he recognizes there are things that he needs to remind them of, and we see series of exhortation and commands. Five in particular, he brings together that immediately, at least to us, seem to be disconnected to one another. 
as Pastor Paul wants to make sure that the church is ready and, and the church understands the implication of his teaching in the previous three chapters, we have these exhortations that are seemingly disconnected like the rapid fire questions and commands. Rejoice, verse four, he says. Show your reasonableness, verse five. Do not be anxious, but pray, verse six. Think about these things, verse 8, and practice these things, verse 9. One after the other, seemingly disconnected commands and exhortations from Paul. And in the midst of these commands appear a simple and grammatically disconnected phrase, woodenly translated, the Lord near. Not even a verb in the original. You have to supply it to simply point out the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. It's a simple and compact phrase that sits right in the middle of these exhortations. Because of the lack of connections to the surrounding exhortations, the meaning of the phrase in this context is somewhat debated. When we say that the Lord is near, what does that mean in the midst of these exhortations that surround that phrase? Many arguments have been made, many discussions continue to take place, but the nearness or the adverb near is a bit of a confusing one. On the one hand, it could mean something temporal, that is, it's about time. Temporal reading would mean something like the translation found in the New Living Translation where they translate this, the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming soon. It's true that Paul and the early Christians understood themselves to be in the end times like you and I, and the expectations of the immediate return of the Lord was fresh on their minds. Prayers like, O Lord, come, or as we keep the original Maranatha, were common and embodied such expectations and hopes that Christians ultimately had. Such expectations are expressed in Philippians as well. You see this in the previous chapter in chapter 3 where we see Paul saying in verse 20, but our citizenship is not here, but it's in heaven. And from heaven we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is this anticipation, expectation, and hope of the Lord's return. There is this none of these things that we say, where wait a little while longer, there are things that I want to do in life. There are things that I haven't enjoyed yet is not the heart of the first century Christians, but Christ is returning. The anticipation and the expectations are there, and we hope for the Lord's return. Lord, come. Come now. Come today is the expectation. And Paul exhorts them in Thessalonians by saying, so then let us not sleep as Christians, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober for the Lord will come soon. This nearness of the Lord does indeed carry that meaning of soon coming return of the Lord. It's a temporal concept. Certainly that's true. But at the same time, here nearness can also mean spatial. Spatial. Spatial reading understands the nearness as proximity, being next to one another, and emphasizes that the Lord is close to us or present with us. 
This also means that he's very aware of the conduct as well as being able to come to the aid of those who call upon him wherever we might be. His nearness, that is his proximity, as well as his nearness to us in our daily living is a common theme throughout scripture. You see this in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Listen to that. The Lord is near to those who have hearts that are broken and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, those who come to him in prayer. To all who call on him in truth, the Lord is near. Who can actually forget Psalm 139, where the nearness of the Lord is emphasized throughout? You see this in Psalm 139 when he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I descend to the bed of Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He even goes on to say, you hem me in. Wherever I go, you seem to be there. Whatever I think, you seem to know my thoughts. Whatever I'm about to do. You determine what my ways. If you're an unbeliever, that's overwhelming crowding. But if you're a believer, it's comforting to know that the Lord is near and near you and never far. Friends, both interpretations are possible. That when we say that the Lord is near, it could mean that the Lord is soon coming back. When we say that the Lord is near, it could also mean that the Lord is right next to us. And here, many scholars have argued over this fact and said probably both are present. But I want to make the case this morning that it's the latter, that is the Lord's near presence is what Paul is emphasizing this morning. Our ESV translations that we read, as well as many of you carry in your app or the Bibles that you carry, connects this phrase that the Lord is at hand, to the phrase about anxiety. And there's a little semicolon there seemingly to connect them together as intimate connections. Previous generation of interpreters thought that this connection is actually with the uh, phrase that precedes it, that it's about reasonableness, that the Lord is near or the Lord is at hand is about the reasonableness of uh, Christians. And certainly it's true that the near presence of Jesus aids us in our anxiety as well as aids us in our reasonable disposition. However, the disconnected phrases right around it, that is the exhortations and commands, seem to lead us to believe that this phrase, that the Lord is near, is connected to all five exhortations right around it. That you are to read those commands with this particular teaching in mind that the Lord is near. This is what I mean by it. Here, Paul says, the Lord is near. Children, rejoice. The Lord is near. Rejoice. Verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Joy and rejoicing have been constant themes in the Philippines, repeated no less than nine times throughout the book. 
118 says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And this is in the context of Paul being told that many are speaking against him. Yet, Paul sitting in prison says, I rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, Even if I am to be poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, it's euphemistic way to simply say, I might die soon, is what Paul is saying. But I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The whole epistle begins and ends with rejoicing. It is enveloped with joy and calls to rejoice. It's worth remembering that Paul was sitting in prison at this point, awaiting a fate that he was unsure of, a tribunal that would determine his future where he wasn't even exactly sure whether he can be released or not. He also writes to Christians who daily knew what persecution meant, that there were oppositions always before Christians. We recognize that to be true, not only in Philippians, in the book of Acts. Yet, as he writes to them in the midst of all these things, he says, rejoice. But friends, it's not simply positive thinking that he has in mind. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Or simply lip service in order to encourage those who may be discouraged. Leaders do this a lot, right? Stiff upper lip, we say, and we're going to act as if everything is fine when they're not because we don't want to be a discouragement to others. Maybe that's what Paul has in mind, but that's not it. Paul's phrase centers upon the words, In the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Instead of focusing on the circumstances and the uncertainties of the present moment, the presence of Christ reminds us of the unchanging realities of heaven and the promises God has given to us in his son, Christ Jesus. Friends, unbelievers are just as rejoicing and happy. And things are going well, their bodies are healthy, and the future looks secure, and their bank accounts are full. Rejoicing in the midst of successes in the world is not a difficulty that even unbelievers are able to enjoy. But what separates believers like you and me, those who trust in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, is simply this, that in the midst of challenge and travails, through tears that we shed unceasingly, Yet in the midst of it, we give thanks. Not despite it, not because of it, in the midst of it, the reason is simply this. The reason we are able to rejoice in the midst of all these difficulties is because the Lord is there with you. You are not alone. You do not carry the burden. Your future is not determined by you. It's in the Lord's hand and he is with you. So friends, as he says, rejoice. The Lord is near, rejoice. And in case you haven't heard it, he repeats it twice. And again, I say, Paul says, rejoice. You know why? Often we forget. Why so downcast, Christians? Lift up your heads to see the Lord's presence in your life. The Lord is near, rejoice. But there's a second thing he says. The Lord is near. Be gentle. 
be gentle. I know what it says here. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If you have an app, there should be a little superscripted letter or a number. If you push that number, you'll see that there is an alternate reading. And the alternate reading is simply gentleness. The word translated reasonableness in the ESV, the footnote indicating gentleness, and in Korean Bibles, it actually says tolerance to indicate patience and acceptance of and consideration of one another. The word carries meaning that goes beyond simple acceptance, however. The term refers to the calm, and kind disposition that enables a person to offer a nonviolent, even generous response to others' aggression. Graciousness may be another word. Forbearance can be a word. Magnanimity, that's an SAT word, that you can utilize as a way of indicating what's going on here. Remember the situation of the early church friends in this particular place when ill-treatment Persecution, opposition, and imprisonment were not uncommon for Christians. Yet in the midst of such opposition, he says, practice gentleness. And the reason is simply drawing us back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Paul there speaks of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Sometimes in our culture, meekness and gentleness seem to be bad words, especially for men. But that's untrue. Those are exactly the qualities that Jesus showed to us. And in commending gentleness, Paul is exhorting the believers who face daily hostilities to be Christ-like in their character, not only among Christians, but before everyone, we should be gentle and we should be forbearing. The nearness of the Lord allows believers to face and respond to opposition and hardships with gentleness because the believers know that he will be with them in the midst of their trials and he will make all things right. Because you know that he is near, because you know that he is there, here he simply says, be gentle. The Lord is with you, therefore you have a way of dealing with things in life in such a way where instead of opposition and hate, you're able to give forbearance and gentleness. For those who come before the Lord with burdens and tears, the Lord will wipe away those tears, he promises. It's amazing how that scene in toddlers in particular. Uh, our daughter is about to be launched to college, so we've been reflecting back uh, a lot about uh, their childhood. I, I, I've been jokingly saying to people, nobody ever says, I wish my kids will go back to their teenage years. They always say, I wish my kids were babies or toddlers. I don't know if that's offensive to teenagers here. I don't mean anything by that, except to say that many parents do look back upon their baby pictures. There's this one picture that gives me a lot of pain and still tears in some ways. My wife had told me one day when she was cooking in the kitchen, don't bring Anna in. Don't bring Anna in. She was frying something. Of course, as a good husband, what do I do? I bring her in, but I take caution by lifting her up and she's not crawling on the ground somewhere. I had no idea having fried something, she placed it on top of the microwave so it was actually higher up. And as I'm holding her talking to my wife, my daughter does what a baby does, dips her hand in that oil. I know, 
But baby skin heal really fast, I found out. It's amazing. What makes it worse was I was so flabbergasted, she asked me which hand was burned. I said, I have no idea which hand it was. Took her to the emergency room. Both hands were wrapped for the several days. And you should have seen her. She was learning how to use the cup. After a while, we figured out which hand. Only one hand was wrapped, her right hand, which she's a righty. And she's holding her cup like this. One fisted because she couldn't fold it any other way. And when she had the bandages off, she still had the hands going like this. We had to reteach her how to hold cups because I burned it. Her hands just fine, just as a final end to this story. I only bring this up to point out when you as parents rush up to a child and you embrace them in the midst of their tears, they calm down immediately. It's amazing how quickly your presence works. In the midst of challenges, oppositions, anger, here he says, remember the Lord is near you. The Lord is near. Be gentle. There's a third point he makes, however. He says, the Lord is near. Pray. The Lord is near. Pray. Let your requests be made known to God. Paul begins with a trait common to many of us, anxiety. Hearts full of cares and minds full of distractions about things that are present, all the things in the past, perhaps things in the future as well. But he says several things here that we ought to remember quickly when he says, worry about nothing, but in everything. Notice the pivot there. Worry about nothing. It's all inclusive, but in everything. It's beyond your pay grade to triage what you bring before the Lord. Our job is to worry about nothing, but in everything come before the Lord, we are uh, told. Include all things. Second, instead of anxiety, try praying, he says. When you're anxious, don't look for other solutions. Here, come before the Lord, he says. Recognizing our tendency to miss his point, Paul piles on synonyms of prayer when he says prayer, supplication, request. Make these known to God, he says. Instead of seeking other solutions, come before him. And here he wants us to come before him in absolute dependence. This is not about distinguishing different prayers or different elements of prayer, but to emphasize his main point, the importance of coming before the Lord. Are you anxious, friends? Pray, Paul says. And he, as he says so, he not only says you should bring everything before the Lord, he says do it with thanksgiving. That seems contrary. You're anxious, But you're told to pray, and when you pray, you pray with thanksgiving. And the reason we are able to give thanks is because when we pray, we get to come before God with the words, our Father in heaven. Once we were sinners, weak, against God, condemned, where the wages of our sins were death. Now we stand before God as sons, daughters, children's heirs, co-heirs with Christ who have very access to the throne of God and the grace of his presence. Why? Because you and I, for those of you who do, confess the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
This is why Paul simply says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The very fact that you and I can begin by saying our Father in heaven is a privilege unbelievers cannot access. And when we do, we come to recognize what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with uh, him, graciously give us all things? Do you know what he means by that? He didn't say, why would he not give you all things you want, is not what Paul said. Paul goes from the greater to the lesser by pointing out, if God is willing to give up his only son for you, why would he spare the small things that you and I ask for and complain for not receiving? He says, this is why I come before him in prayer. He who did not spare his son for you will not spare those things that will ultimately help carry you till the end. But he's not yet done when he says, you know what the result of this praying is? Since the problem was anxiety and you brought everything before him with thanksgiving in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord, what happens is simply this. The surpassing and incomprehensible peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's worth noting that this whole section is enveloped by the notion of peace. The peace of God in verse 7 is given Because in verse 9, the God we believe in is the God of peace. Notice the play on words there? He envelops the section by reminding us of who God is. We are given when we pray, when we're anxious, the peace of God. And the reason is simply our God to whom we pray is the God of peace. That we are able to sing when we pray, when peace like a river attends my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, my, uh, 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 thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Those words are only possible because the peace of God who grants you peace in Christ Jesus when you come to him in prayer with thanksgiving when you're anxious. The Lord is near, friends. Pray. There's a fourth And I know you're counting now. There are five total. Two more, quickly. The Lord is near. Verse 8 says, think about Christ. Think about these things we're told in verse 8. Paul is fully aware that the thoughts that occupy our minds and the images that capture our imagination shape our characters and find expression in our actions. Therefore, think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Just, lovely, commendable, any excellence, anything worthy of praise, we're told. Who is the object of our thought, reflection, and imagination? It's Jesus Christ, who is near. Remember what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. These are qualities that reflect the perfection of Christ Jesus. And Paul is exhorting the Christians to think after Christ always. Friends, this is a time where we have to ask, what occupies our minds? 
Paul is simply telling us, for those of us who are sons and daughters of Christ Jesus our Lord, here, our mind should be occupied about him. I know this sounds old and trite, but you need to remember that one of the major issues of the first century was idolatry. That is, making, seeing, and believing in a statue created to represent people's wishes and desires. This is the reason for one of the most puzzling endings of any epistles in 1 John 5.21, where the very last verse of that letter simply ends by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the reason for that is because our minds are idol factories. Many of us have personal idols, be it career, money, children, marriage, health, school, or others that we use to define ourselves simply saying, apart from these things being in my life, I cannot be who I want to be. Where it takes significance as well as satisfaction in ways that only God can fulfill. But we also recognize we have idols of our own that go beyond us where we see cultural idols and we adopt them as our own. Having been catechized daily by the world around us, be it social media, TVs, or commercials, or anything else that you have around you. And here, Paul is simply saying, Christians, Jesus is near. Look at him. Reflect on Christ Jesus. Reflect on Christ Jesus. Think about Christ. No one else. We are daily catechized, friends. And simply Paul is reminding us, you ought to be immersed, marinating in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he should preoccupy your mind and your hearts. Final thought is simply this. The Lord is near. Be faithful. Verse 9 says, practice these things. A mind captivated by Christ leads to a life captured by Christ. A life captivated by Christ is a life captured by Christ. A mind transformed by Christ creates a life transformed by the very same Christ. In other words, Paul's remembering, Paul's reminding us to think about these things and think about these things naturally leads to practice these things. It's a pattern. Pondering on Christ and his life progresses on to practicing them daily in our daily living. In reflecting on Christ, the spirit quietly but assuredly conforms our desires to the heart of Christ and conforms our mind to the mind of Christ Jesus, our Lord, so that you and I may become more like him, reflecting his image and reflecting his glory. Paul was the chief example of this. This is why Paul says, do as I do. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. This is discipleship 101. When Paul says, not just what I say, do what I do. He says, pointing to what Paul and Silas experienced in their own lives. For as you remember, Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ taking deep root in his life meant a life transformed from being a blasphemer, persecutor, one who hated God, to now one in whom grace overflows. Look at the language being utilized here in 1 Timothy where he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1.13. Though formerly, he said, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, 
insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Notice the passive. I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, he says, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says, think about Jesus. And the more you think about Jesus, you do things after him as your heart and mind are conformed to Christ Jesus. May I speak briefly to our parents that are here? And this is myself included when I am unable to say to my children what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. To my children. And it's a shame. It's an element of huge prayer request before the Lord. Often we are able to say, do as I say. But do our lives reflect the perfections of Jesus Christ as the Spirit works in us, in our hearts and our minds? Pew Research recently produced a report titled Parenting in America Today. When asked about their aspirations for their children when they reach adulthood, parents' priorities are, one, being financially independent, 88%. Having jobs or careers they enjoy, 88%. Earn a college degree, 41%. And getting married, 21%. Those are the top four. If you found the percentage of college attendance seemingly to be odd, if you aggregate the numbers, Asians represent 70% of that. 70% of all Asians said college degree is important. So you could see how culturally and backgrounds do affect some of these elements. What surprised me was the data on the kind of people parents want their children to be. Being honest and ethical, 94%. Hardworking, 88%. Being someone who helps others in need, 81%. Accepting of people who are different from them, 80%. Similar religious beliefs to their own, 35%. 35%. I'm not sure what to do with that number. Disaggregating wasn't helping me in terms of seeing the numbers. We pay a lot of attention to our children being conformed to those things that are considered good and acceptable by the world. But in terms of passing on our faith, it seems to fall out of our consciousness and the priorities that you and I have. I know that's not your heart, nor is it mine. Yet in many ways, reflecting and thinking about Jesus for ourselves is the very means by which you practice these things. And I do wonder in many ways how you and I fall short in that direction, not as a rebuke, but as a reminder that we really need to come before him in dependence, that he may continue to work with us. Here, the Lord is near, friends. Practice these things and be faithful. His desire is for us to reflect upon him and by his spirit become more like him. I think that's what's going on here with Paul. To remind us of the presence of God, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Rejoice. Pray. Be gentle. Think about Christ. And he says, be faithful always in what you do. During the Reformation, there are a lot of solas that were shared, but there is one non-sola that also became a very wonderful shorthand for the mindset of Christian lives during the Reformation was simply this, coram deo, 
which is in the presence of God. That is, every day you live, you live with the full consciousness that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. My brothers and sisters and friends here at New Life, may the Spirit work in your hearts every single day in such a way that Christ, who is risen and living and reigns forevermore, is not just a thought that you have, but that you may daily know and experience his presence and nearness in your life. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we are so grateful for the reminder of your death and resurrection last week and last Sunday. We recognize now that you live forevermore and you reign over your people. As you live, Lord, teach us by your spirit to know that you are right here with us even now. Thank you for welcoming us into your home so that we may behold you, not only to know you in our minds, but to experience you daily in our walk. Allow us to know that the Lord is near and fill our hearts with rejoicing. Fill our hearts, O Lord, with gentleness, even to those who are outsiders. Fill our hearts with desires to come before you in absolute dependence and prayer. Fill our hearts and minds with Christ Jesus in your word, O Lord, that no matter what is trying to catechize us and our children, our focus and our desire will be to know you more and to lift your name on high. And by your spirit, work within us, O Lord, so that daily we may become more like you, discipled by Christ and Christ alone in the word. Thank you for this word of reminder from Paul. Pray that every single day, O Lord, you may remind us of your presence in our lives. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Joel Kim of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.